following podcast contains coarse language and strong opinions on wine. Seriously, these two have potty mouths and little self-control. Listeners, you've been warned. Live from our basement studios here in suburban Chicago, it's another edition of That Wine Pod. I'm Pete, and sitting across from me, my co-host, the Muscadet Messiah, Vino Mike. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That Wine Pod. I'm pretty sure what I just said is sacrilegious. <laughs> That's all right. My last name, Matanti, has been transformed into many, many different iterations, including Methuselah. Okay. Which is the size of a, a wine bottle, actually. It is. So it yeah. kind of ties in a little bit. but And an old dude from the Bible. Someone along, yeah, yeah, a little religious uh, tie in there. Um, had nothing to do with that. Just someone didn't want to say Matanti and deemed me Methuselah. That's... Which turned into the nickname of Thuz or Duthuz. Interesting. But now we're at TMI. It, I'm, well, I'm glad it didn't turn into meth. <laughs> so that's... You almost got it if, if you're the Methuselah of Muscadet, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of those big bottles are named after biblical, like Nebuchadnezzar and, and yeah. Jeroboam. I think those are all biblical. I think. Yeah. I Don't ask me. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. They it's been a while. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I think of the Matrix, right? Wasn't that the name of their ship or oh, something? Oh, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to Google this. Somebody, I'm sure, will tell us if. I'm right or completely off base. Yeah, definitely call us out, people. Call us out. We're just here uh, shooting the breeze, shooting the shit sometimes, and uh, whatever comes out. Oh, yeah. I, well, I mean, I make up most of my wine knowledge on the fly anyway. <laughs> exactly. So it's, I mean, and listeners have noticed that. It's been in reviews that, I mean, they, they realize <laughs> I don't know shit. It's okay. It's all oh, good. I love it. I love it. It's, it, it, you know, it it uh, results in a in a definitely a fun conversation and back and forth. And I, you know, it's great like not having script and just, you know, you you definitely throw in some <laughs> some excellent comments along the way to like it makes me think about wine in a different um, type of manner as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do this because we love talking about wine and mm-hmm. and we're friends and and we I learn a lot from you. Somebody can learn maybe one or two things for me. But the the point of the show is to be fun, entertaining and relaxed, not yeah, yeah, yeah. snooty and putting my nose in the snow in the soil or something, <laughs> right? Like it's all right. And and frankly, Mike, it's free. If it, they don't want to listen, they don't have to. It is, man. This is our show. <laughs> Feel free to pay my bills. I have no problem with that, but you know, tips, tips, gratuity, <laughs> right. donations, all we of need a tip jar, just like sitting out on the desk. Virtual, nobody's coming in. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I can look at adding that to our website or something, you know, even if it's like five cents, 10 right. cents or something. Well, you know, as we get vaccinated, maybe we can invite in, you know, a, a, a listener or two for a studio audience. Hey, all right. You know, yeah, they can Start. come on over and you know, we'll have some fun. Start opening up. Absolutely. I know a few people have reached out and they would enjoy it. And so would we. So yeah, yeah keep that in mind. So where are you going tonight? Some rando that I listened to his podcast has been come over to his house. I figured why not <laughs> in the basement? <laughs> uh, oh, dude. Well, anyway, yes, you came swinging for the fences today with what you brought. Yeah, baby. I'm thirsty. This is why you are the Messiah. And I was kind of thinking, Pete, that, you know, 
so we've done some episodes. First of all, like shout out to some new listeners. We we've had some some new people jump on board recently, which we appreciate so much. They've reached out on social media, made comments, etc. And I hope that they do go back to some previous episodes, maybe. And you know, they'll probably look at some titles and listen to what they want to listen to. But it, for those that are newer to the show, you know. And those those that have been listening know this. We are huge fans of we're talking, Italy. We're talking to you, Marion Akron. Yeah, there you go. And uh, Marion Akron. Uh, well, we're huge fans of Italy, and and we're in, more specifically Piedmont, right? And we're also huge fans of French wine, and we talk a lot about the Loire Valley. And to do like one episode on the Loire is impossible, just like it is to do one episode on all of Piedmont and all the wines that are made here. There's, I think there's some really cool parallels here with the Loire Valley and Piedmont in terms of, you know, the, the styles, the diversity of styles that are made from sweet to dry to sparkling to red, white, rosé, like everything under the sun is made in Piedmont. Everything under the sun is made under the Loire. And I think that's why I really gravitated towards the Loire. You also find a lot of great value in the Loire Valley. So rather than do a whole Loire show, I thought maybe we can do some mini series and go a little off the beaten path. I think when you talk about the Loire Valley, for the most part, wine drinkers that have gotten into wine have heard of and probably experienced drinking Sancerre, um, Chinon, and like Vouvray or Appalachians for Chenin Blanc. So I was thinking like a- ABC, like anything but Chinon, anything but Chenin <laughs> with an S, anything right. but Sancerre. Mm-hmm. And not to diminish those regions, they're they're known for a reason. They're fucking amazing and they make great wines. But uh, I thought maybe we can explore some of the off-the-beaten-path Appalachians and what better to start with than the one closest to the Atlantic Ocean known as Muscadet. Absolutely, dude. And you've hit immediately on one of my absolute favorite white wines, not just from Loire or from France, but in the world. Mm. It's something that... Talking Muscadet here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's underappreciated mm-hmm. overall by wine drinkers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it's a little bit intimidating in terms of understanding what you've got, what it is, and how to use it, right? Because it's not necessarily one where you just sit down and, and sip. I mean, you can, right, on a, on a nice warm day. But the food pairing is where this guy um, or gal, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how it identifies. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Uh, where this one absolutely shines, right? Yes. And we'll get into that. So I'm going to let you kind of take it away, you know, and, and give us some education learn us some muscadet stuff so i you know in prepping a little bit for the episode i love muscadet too i think many wine you know wine if you've gotten deep into wine you've probably come across muscadet before and it's hard not to love and um you know to me i also found some similarities with this appellation to chianti and here's what i mean um for those that maybe aren't familiar with Muscadet, I'll sort of use Chianti to help um, draw some parallels and paint the picture. So uh, Chianti is an appellation in Italy. It's got its own DOC. Muscadet is an appellation in France, in the Loire Valley. It's got its own what we call AOP or AOC. And within the region of Chianti, there are subregions like Chianti Classico and Chianti Colisanetsi and Rufina, right? And within Muscadet, 
the regular Muscadet AOP, there's sub-appellations. There's three, and they're all geographical, just like in Chianti. The Classico is its own geographical zone. Um, and in Muscadet, there's uh, the, the uh, like Muscadet Sevra et Men, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, there is the Cote de Grand U, Muscadet Cote de Grand U, and the Coteau, uh, Muscadet Coteau, I'm, I, I got to remember this one. Let's see. Um, there is one more. Man, I'm, I'm stumbling and fumbling. Muscadet Coteau de la Loire. Um, those are a little bit more off the beaten path. I, I don't really see Coteau de la Loire Muscadet that often. Um, Cote de Grand Lieu you see sometimes, but the main one, which we're going to taste and focus on today, is Muscadet Sevre et Men. And um, so this is located all the way uh, east. The Loire River is very, very, very long. And the Loire Valley wine region is very, uh, if you want to think about it as kind of an east-west region, way far west is where you'll find Sancerre and Puy Fume. And where the river starts to get close to emptying out into the Atlantic Ocean, or actually that's known as the Bay of Biscay, this is the far eastern part. There's a town there called Nantes, and the Muscadet region is just um, southeast of Nantes. Okay. Um, what's important here are the rivers that run through here. So besides the Loire, the Coteau de Loire is on the north or the right bank. And then there's two tributary rivers, smaller ones. One is called the Sev and one is called the Main. And these two rivers intersect and in between them, you find this Muscadet Sevre at Main Appalachian, where the vineyards are planted in between these rivers and along the river banks. And then as you go a little bit further east of the men, you get the Cote de Grand Lieu. So geography is important here, just like it is in the region of Chianti, where things are located. Arguably, the best vines for Muscadet are in this region, the Sevre at Main. And these are the wines you're going to see the most imported here in the United States. Um, Muscadet Sevra et Maine AOC. That's the full name of the appellation. You can see pics of the label on our social media. We are talking about one main grape here. So in Chianti, you're talking about Sangiovese. And yes, they can blend other grapes there, but all Chianti is predominantly Sangiovese. All Muscadet is Muscadet, a.k.a. Melon de Bourgogne. So the grape here is called Melon de Bourgogne, but people also just call it Muscadet. And, and you as the consumer out there, the audience, you can just call it, what are you drinking? I'm drinking Muscadet, just like Chianti. You don't say like, oh, what are we having? Oh, I'm having a Sangiovese. No, you typically you'll call that Chianti. Um, and there we go, Melon de Bourgogne. So this is, uh, you know, 100%. It's one varietal. It is the only thing pretty much planted in this region, and it grows really, really, really well. The other thing to note about this region is that it's mostly negociant. There is so much of this Melon de Bourgogne that larger negociant, bigger wine companies will just buy up the fruit from farmers, and there's so much of it, the price of these grapes are kind of excruciatingly low, and they will just blend the melon from all these different farmers all throughout the terroirs and the regions and make kind of mass-produced everyday drinking muscadet which is not that exciting but very very affordable and meant to be drunk like right away the better producers 
and the smaller producers are starting to explore the terroirs, the individual little areas within Muscadet Severet, Maine, which we can call crew. Sort of like Chianti, like you can get Rada, like those villi- those communes in Chianti, you can get really site-specific and talk about those. So um, so in the, uh, in the glass today, and what I brought over, I think is one of the best examples of Muscadet on the planet. And uh, I think a lot of people would agree that know this wine. It is um, Domaine de la Pepiere. That's the producer. Um, la Pepiere is actually a little commune along the main river. That's I did the, not know that. That's the name of a little village, a little town, huh. Domaine de la Pepiere. And uh, the, the, the main name behind this estate, who's really well known in the wine world, is Marc Olivier. Um, he was kind of the creator and founder of Domaine de la Pepiere, but I think he had a few partners along with him. So like these two or three winemakers and partners formed what is known as Domaine de la Pepiere. And uh, what we're drinking today in our glass is called their Clos de Briords. And the Clos de Briords was a crew or a single parcel that's only about four hectares that they started bottling off separately on its own. I think when they first started, they had their estate and they would just harvest the muscadet and some were from this area and some were from that, some were from old vines, some were from young, and they would just blend together and make muscadet, which they still do make a regular muscadet AOP. This one is labeled specifically Clos de Briords. It also says Cuvée Velvine on the label, old vines. And these are on average 60-year-old vines Hmm. um, planted, you know, 50 to 70 years ago for the most part. Wow. So a very old vine Cuvée from a very site-specific region. And what's really interesting to me about this is the different soils that they've gotten into and the different aspects that the some of these winemakers like Domaine de la Pepiere have gotten into where um, this is actually a very granitic area. Um, it's part of a massif, which is a piece of the planet's crust, basically, that's demarcated on all lines by faults. Hmm. So it moves like the interior is never destroyed. It, it moves as one giant piece. And where we are is the very, very southern part of this massif. And it stretches through like Brittany and Normandy through the English Channel up into Dover, like this big piece of crust. And what you find here in the southern part are these really dramatic um, like cliffs, like just straight off cliffs. Like you have these vines at the top and then a cliff that goes almost like straight down to the river, um, which in this case is the River Main. And they've carved out these just dramatic um, cliff sides that I didn't really, you know, when I first was drinking Muscadet, I pictured like these soft rolling hills everywhere or something, but it's, it's quite different. And because of these, this massif and these cliffs, these are actually very um, predominantly granite and schist and mica and gneiss, like all these like granitic and volcanic type soils versus alluvial and sand and clay that you might associate with a river valley, like the Loire River Valley. And exploring these different granitic soils is what has ultimately led to bottling these smaller single crew or single vineyard type type bottlings that they do. That's interesting. I, I mean, we've heard of the cliffs of Dover, so it makes sense that yeah. it kind of stretches 
all that way, right? They're famous for their white cliffs. Thing. Yeah. I think yeah. there's been even songs written about that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about like 60-year-old vines in this one yeah. that are planted, you know, so this is located along the main river up um, higher elevation that looks over the river. And these vines, they got to dig super deep through the initial topsoil into this granitic rocky soil to search for water. So the the roots get, get really deep, really deep roots here. Yeah. Well, and what that's going to do for the wine is it's going to bring out a lot of good minerality um, right away and concentration too, because those roots, got, when they got to work, yeah, you're not going to get a lot of... Uh, a lot of berries. Right. So you're going to get fewer berries and they're going to be much more tight and concentrated. So you'll get a lot of, uh, a lot of flavor, but not necessarily, um, a lot of alcohol. Yes. Right. So you're going to get a lighter style, lighter bodied wine, but with all this flavor just exploding. And I think sometimes that's a little disconcerting for newer wine drinkers, right. Or even mm-hmm. intermediate wine drinkers at times, right. They, they'll associate flavor Big flavor with big body. Yes. And that's just not necessarily true. It can be, but it's just not necessarily true. And I think this is a perfect example of how a light-bodied wine can be explosive in terms of flavor. So this one on the label checks in at 12% alcohol. And they actually, I believe the minimum for this AOC is 11%. So they do got to, they got to get some ripeness here. But um, there, there's also just tremendous amounts of like salinity and acidity and, and things like that. Um, because we have like cool breezes, because um, there are some windier locations. And um, just because of the, the way that these roots, you know, dig so deep into the vine. I think that you can get some plunk muscadet that is sure. nothing but like acid and super simplicity. But what we're dealing with in our glass today is super old vine, super ageable, super full of flavor. And one of the biggest characteristics and terms is Sir Lee for muscadet wines. You'll see this on the bottle. And I think that adds a lot to what you're talking about in that full flavored spectrum. Right. So, that's a great point. Super low alcohol, high acid, but this wine is full flavored, really complex. And um, it's because of this Sir Lee technique. So while you're sniffing and tasting over there, um, I'll talk about Sir Lee real quick. So this is basically a term that where the wine is aged on the lees and the lees are dead yeast cells. So after fermentation sounds hot yeah right so this is i think this is why they came up with the term sir lee instead of dead yeast aging <laughs> it's a like punk band dead yeast cells <laughs> dead dead yeast matured maybe ska this is matured on the dead yeast yeah yeah have you been to the dead you <laughs> catch that dead yeast <laughs> the grateful dead yeast i don't know um but yeah, these yeasts, like the, the cells, they die, they, um, and when, when that happens, they kind of settle to the bottom of the fermentation vessel and the winemakers leave those yeasts in the vessel and, um, they will stir the lees sometimes, sometimes they won't, that's called batonage. But when you leave these solids in with the juice, what happens is it extracts some body and some richness and even like a little bit of grippiness, a little bit of tannin um, that might add to that full flavored and that complexity. So um, I know you took a sip here. What uh, what's your first impression here? I'm trying to stop drooling. That's, <laughs> that's my first impression. Finally, it's not me, right? not me drooling on the mic. It it's is Pete over here. It's 
I mean, it's just outstanding for the the fact that this is a 2014. We're sitting here in 2021. Yeah. And it's this fresh. Yeah. I didn't mention the vintage yet. And I didn't tell you what I was bringing over. I, I cannot believe the freshness here mm-hmm. still. First of all, get your nose out of the glass is going to take a while because there's a shit ton going on. Yeah. I'm just sm- enjoying the aromas and smelling this thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's floral. It's not like Viognier Gewurztraminer floral, but these wines typically have some aromatic florality to them, like some chamomile or flowers of the field or just like it's spring right now. It's it, we're, we're recording this in uh, April and you can like things are blooming and it just has that that freshness, that aroma that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, for sure. A lot of melon. There's some citrus in there. Uh, maybe some herb that I, a little bit there, but you could definitely get the herb on the palate along mm. with just very good tart um, citrus fruit and almost like under underripe melon. Um, like a honeydew that's just not quite there. Yeah, good call. It's, you know? it's starting to get into that riper and richer and i think they're very deliberately making sure they have good ripeness um on these grapes before they're harvested to help help that out and help boost that a little bit but because of the bottle age i think when we i you know you're pretty familiar with this wine yeah you know this is something that in the retail world we sell every vintage of it's really well sought sought after by fans and you don't get a whole lot of it either because you know old vine cuvee there's not a lot produced um my point being that we've tasted this wine together and separately on multiple occasions when it's first released right when it's really young and then you're going to get brighter citrus and who knows maybe even a little bit of tropical fruit um more like crunchy fresh apple pear those types of things but um I can't remember when I picked this up, Pete, but it was probably like five years ago and just threw these in the cellar because I know how age worthy they are, but I've never done it. So, um, you know, I threw a handful of these bottles in the cellar and this is the first one that I'm chucking in on at about six, seven years old. And it's kind of cool to see that fruit component turn into more of that honeydew and that concentrated, but it's still, it's so fresh and lively and you can just taste the, you know, the minerality is just in spades here. And I don't know. I think this is a baby, you know, I think Um, so too. I mean, there's like a salty finish that mm -hmm. is so alluring. Yeah. I mean, it's really, incredibly well done yeah i mean it the the way that this is crafted right when you don't have that much alcohol you're gonna have to rely on the acidity to get that aging and not have it become just a flabby mess Mm -hmm. and so it's just crafted perfectly from that perspective to me and i think it's got several more years uh on it to evolve and i don't know i mean there's there's a lot happening i could tell you that so speaking about the crafting, just so the the audience knows what's up with this wine, um, they they ferment it. They they let the juice settle before fermentation for twelve hours, and it then is fermented in stainless steel, ages on its lees. This is cool in large glass lined underground vats for eight months. Hmm. I'm not quite sure what a large glass lined underground vat is or looks like. I'll let you see mine later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, if these are aged under like, like kind of buried in the ground with the, the top to it, you you know, above ground that you can access the juice or whatever, or 
you know, I'm not quite sure what the deal is. I've never been to this estate or this region. I would love to after reading some of this, but it's aged on those leaves for eight months. Um, they say SO2 additions are three to five grams per hectoliter, which is very Nothing. small after alcoholic fermentation with a possible adjustment at bottling. So like as needed based on the stability of the wine or right. the taste or whatever, but um, eight months on the lees, which is about standard for when you see surly on the bottle. Um, now we were talking about crew earlier and the crew are basically these small communes and villages that are along the river uh, the two rivers, the Sevra and the main river. And there's like Clisson. There's a small town commune called Chateau Thébault. There's a crew called Gorge that's named after a village. And when you're bottling by these crew, which have been officially recognized by the AOC, you have to follow stricter guidelines with the Surly, which is about 17 months minimum. Domaine de la Pepier, they make some of these crews. They make a Clisson and a Gorge and a Chateau Thibault, if I recall correctly. And they go way beyond, of course, right? They go at least 24 months on the lees. That's three times what we're tasting right now, dude, right? 24 months on the lees. Sometimes they'll push that to 36 or 48 wow. months on the lees. Wow. Those, one thing we haven't talked about yet, those reserve wines... I think are around twenty twenty five dollars. Yeah, they're they're. I think they're getting towards thirty now, but that could have just been this Claude Briord yeah. is like fifteen ninety nine. Yeah. Let's say like seventeen bucks, yes. eighteen bucks MSRP or whatever. Yeah. You might find it a few bucks cheaper. Whatever. Regardless, it's well under twenty on average, and for a wine of this quality, this caliber, with this ageability, it's one of the best value white wines on the planet. I would agree. I mean, I think from about 12 bucks to, you know, whatever, uh, but they don't really get all that expensive. I think you're yeah. pretty safe trying one, right? For me, what I found the as you get under 12 bucks and especially down into under 10 and there are a few out there, mm -hmm. they start to get plunkish. Yeah. So, like but ubiquitous but the, and just kind yeah. of but if you just spend the extra two, three, four dollars, mm -hmm. you're gonna be blown away by it. Yeah, and and you know we talked about uh, me because I've always bringing up food, but <laughs> you know there's a there's a classic dish that this is um, that this is paired with moule frites, which is um, mussels and French fries, right? Oh my gosh! Yes. And I don't know if you've ever had this dish, but it's it's tremendous. Yes, so. You know, it's from, I think it's from Nantes originally. Okay. Makes sense. Um, and it is just, you get mussels that are just kind of flash fried, like just real quick. Mm -hmm. And then they're um, put in with, uh, uh, tossed with shallots and herbs and mm -hmm. just muscadet. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and then a little wine and yep. right. And then it's put in with the French fries. And oh man, maybe a little garlic aioli on top to finish it sometimes, yeah, or times. off on the side to yeah. dip the fries in or something. Yeah, but that reminds me of um, uh, let's see, 2019, going off to see uh, to see fish in Colorado. Met my my buddy picked me up, uh, who's a fan of the show. Um, shout out to Eddie here, and we went out to a nice little um, lunch. We, you know, didn't really have a game plan, just went into Denver and found this awesome little French bistro oh, yeah. place. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but guess what we had, dude? We started off with 
a pot of mussels and a bottle of muscadet. Beautiful. And it was an we had a moment. It was a little bromance. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun, and it, it, it's it's a classic pairing for a reason. I mean, when you do mussels and frites with a muscadet like get ready your senses are going to explode and it's it's an awesome awesome pairing um i think uh scallops is another great one you know you can do your classic seafood tower of course like you can do chilled seafood with muscadets. well oysters and muscadet to me I, I like it more than champagne and oysters personally yeah, yeah. it's my favorite pairing with oysters on mm-hmm. the shell um i actually had it one time with this uh barnacle dish and it was very good very <laughs> right interesting on. something a little different you know yeah. uh and what i always like to bring up too when i'm talking with you know just you know because i like to chat about muscadet just with people at random like if i see you on the street i might just stop you and start talking about muscadet right it's what we do it's what i do as the messiah that's right <laughs> uh well and i'm a disciple so that's why i do that uh the original burr blanc was made is made with muscadet so that's where the Burr Blanc sauce comes from. Interesting. I did not know uh, that. And if I'm wrong, any chefs out there, if I'm wrong, let me know. But I'm I'm pretty sure about this one. I watch a shit ton of Top Chef. Oh, OG Burr Blanc. Now yeah. it's like use whatever. Yeah, do whatever. Right? But it's I'm talking wine. OG. Yeah. All white the way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you get, uh, you know, if you think about that, right? Like that's a pretty big thing, right? Because Burr Blanc is one of the cornerstone sauces of French cooking. So, um, or I would argue cooking in general, mm-hmm. so, um, you, you get a lot of that. And the other thing I'll bring up is, uh, you can pair these wines with a cheese plate mm-hmm. on a nice day, mm-hmm. sit outside with a cheese plate, yeah. get yourself some brie, some gruyere, just sit on back with a glass of this. That's awesome. Another reason I wanted to bring this over today, we're s- springtime here in in the Northern part of the country and, you know, getting into warmer temps and summers around the corner and that's muscadet season um, when you're not slamming rosé or cans of truly first or something. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's it's a perfect picnic white. It's a great aperitif. Um, I think the smaller production wines that are hard to find, like these crew and this bottle included Briords, I think it deserves something a little more substantial like what you're talking about um, the mussels or yeah, we, I mean, there's a classic dish at Parker's restaurant, the Dover sole oh, yeah. with lemon burr blanc. Um, I mean, golly, perfect pairing with muscadet with muscadet sevre et main sur lit. Wow. Um, if you find some regular cheap old muscadet and what I was going to say earlier too, is like, if you're in France or in Paris or visiting oh, the Loire, yeah. you're going to find like the equivalent of like five bucks a bottle. Muscadet. Yeah. And that's a different story I'm talking just, about here you just pound it but you know when you're finding like more premium producers and what's awesome is I, I think that this wine like this is a baby at seven years old you know at like 17 bucks a bottle Th- this is so undervalued and underpriced it's ridiculous I would pay a lot more and I'm not telling you muscadet people to raise your prices at all but i think the 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 massive amount of plunk and the massive amount of grapes that are grown here and planted everywhere helps keep those prices down in general and so far like no one winemaker has gone way off the reservation and is like here's my muscadet single vineyard and i'm gonna sell it for you know msrp 50 dollars a bottle you know there's there it just no one has done that so it's coming 
you know, I hope not. I, I think it will. And the reason I think it will is I think that there will be some hipster winemaker that moves in there and does that. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just a, a trend in wine right now. Well, this this winemaker was like the OG, you know, an OG. And, and he actually, Mar- Marc Olivier just retired. I was just learning this recently that he retired in 2019. That's his last vintage. And there are two... They became partners in the domain maybe about in the last five years. They have taken over. I don't know much about them, so I'm not going to go into that. But um, at least this estate is in really capable hands. And it's also been imported since the late 80s by um, Dresner. It's a Dresner selection. So that's still in the hands of uh, the, you know, imported by Dresner. But I guess what I'm saying is that instead of like the new and hip, person coming in this was just yeah passed along right? yeah absolutely no, so that's kind of cool yeah I, i'm with you i mean i i hope not yeah but i could see i could totally see it happening because it has all the hallmarks of cool mm-hmm. right yeah it's it's a it's a known region but kind of unknown yeah. it's it's got uh, all these really cool soils, and it's natural. The cool terms. It's natural. It, this one is certified organic. Right. They practice biodynamic. It, it has all those hallmarks of, hey, let me move in there, slap a, a, a more a less classic label, more of a, a pithy, strange label on it, and, and go ahead and jack up the price. Mm-hmm. I, look, I'm just saying that I'm seeing this all over the world, like in, in strange ways, right? Yeah. So, and... um. But hopefully it, it continues on some of these classics just to be as they are. Well, some right? people are definitely in the know about the tremendous value of this wine. And when we carried it in the shop, in in the retail world, I just wanted to th- bounce this off you. Like there was a big fan of this wine customer and he would come in and, you know, he would see it stacked up like it finally came in. Again, there's not a lot produced. It's more allocated. This is something where, you know, Dresner gives the local distributor their allocation and then that distributor allocates. And, you know, maybe we would get as a chain like 20 cases. Yeah. At the most. Right. I was going to say that's a good year. That's a good year. So not not a whole lot, especially since it's like retails for, you know, inexpensive. And so this person would come in and just say, I'll take all of it. Very common, right? What, you know, I'm like, from the business side, that's great. You you turn over a skew real quick and, you know, like as an, in, as an independent just business thing, you get this big sale, the wine is in and out, whatever. But there was always like a part of me that just, you know, kind of broke my heart a little bit. And who was I to stand in the way of anyone? And it wasn't my business anyways, right? Like... Yeah, like my company to make any sort of so, what you know? What's your take on that? It's a difficult, it's a difficult call because you want to spread the love on wines, like right? This, well, especially that's what when I was they're say. when they're eighteen bucks, especially when you can. Hey, you've never had Muscadet? Try this, right? And like now you've got someone new on on board with with these great wines, right? Well, I mean, it's a, a pretty classic business problem. I mean, I could make a case either way. You've got you're going to make one person happy, or you're going to make maybe a hundred people happy, right? Um, you, you've got that dilemma, but also a dollar in hand is worth way more than a dollar you're waiting for. Yeah. That real estate that the wine was on is worth money. Right. You could turn the next wine, hopefully. Right. right? Uh, 
I, I think that for allocated wines, I think you can easily make the case like, hey, I'll sell you no more than four cases of it or something, right? I, I think that you can make that case pretty easily. I, and I, if it was my store, I probably would. You know, I would talk with them, right, about it and say, here's what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and my guess is they'd be understanding. And that's the problem with, like, the bigger stores, even though the one we worked at isn't, like, a massive chain like a Binnie's or certainly a Costco. But you still – it's not a one-person shop. Right. You know, you, you still have multiple people, multiple employees from full-time to part-time. And, you know, people just come in the door whenever, right? So it's like to have – you, you need to definitely have someone that has that relationship perhaps and say like, here's what we can do for you. Right. But at the same time, you know, you don't want to rock the boat or make them feel like. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would talk with them. Right. I mean, if you're an employee, you've got to just sell the wine. I mean, yeah. your job is to sell wine. That's it. Right. Uh, unless there's something on there that, that says no more than, mm-hmm. and you're seeing that more and more as you go into even large stores you know, no more than one bottle of this bourbon, no more than six bottles of this wine. And that's okay. Now, the, the problem is they can just walk out the door, come back in, buy another. Yeah. Like, I I've, I understand it to a point, but, you know, that's why I think a, a, a talk would be good. Like, hey, I'll give you four cases a year. If I get four, you get the four. If I get 12, I get to keep eight to, to sell. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I don't want to go over it. And I'll come back to you if I, if I don't sell it. Right? I mean, because you're not going to drink those four in a, in a week. Well, I mean, you might, yeah. but then we're going to have a different discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's going, it's going obviously going into the hands of someone that appreciates it, that knows it. Right. Um, well, but, in this uh, case, yes, right? And we could talk about this another time, but yeah. in cases of something like Domaine de la Romani Conti, that's maybe going into a collector's hand to flip eventually, right, not right. something that appreciates it right. and it's super rare, right? Different price points, understood. Yeah. But there are... In this case, you're pretty sure they're not flipping you know, <laughs> yeah. Muscade, right? Yeah. So that's, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's a good discussion, and it, it's something that I, I hope that nobody would get upset about. Right. But I could totally see somebody getting upset about it. I mean, I've never had a problem when I've told somebody, like, look, I can do this, and here's why. I mean, they they almost get it every single time. I don't think I've ever lost a customer yeah. by having a talk, yeah. right? So I don't know. It's interesting. And I, I, I would recommend to our audience, you know, grabbing six to 12 bottles of this wine. So, absolutely, you know, going with like 48 bottles, hopefully that customer is satisfied. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, would, I would hope. Right? That's, yeah. that's, that's a lot. But this is definitely, for the price point, this is a wine that you, when it comes out, buy a case, bury it in the cellar. Right. Maybe try a bottle when it's young. Right. right. Then the next year, same thing. Buy a case, bury it on top of the first one. Et cetera, right. et cetera. Before you know it, you can start popping some verticals of this wine. Um, you can after s- inviting us over. After inviting us over for right. giving you the idea, right? right. <laughs> and stretch stretch it out as far as you can. Um, I I can't remember how many I bought of this, dude, but maybe like six bottles or something like that. Well, I appreciate you sharing and, one because oh, it's course, unreal. Of course, dude. it's my pleasure. This is a lot of fun to taste these on the show, and uh, it's just amazing experience for for me to share with you and just to get to talk about this on the pod. So, um, but this is just one of those like under the radar, really awesome treasures, like diamond in the rough almost kind of a thing. I would agree. Um, yeah, where you, I mean, I don't know. 20 years like this is a 20 year one 
I think it could be. I think it's interesting that a wine of this price could be, and it's not seen that way by the critics. The critics typically don't give these any more than eight to 12 years yeah. um, in terms of their window to drink. I haven't seen a Muscadet in the top 10 of a top 100 list yet. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, I definitely would would talk about it and and or try to get that many and, and lay them down. And guess what? Just try, right? Mm-hmm. Just keep, I mean, if you've got 12 of them, you could drink it over a 12-year span. Bottle a bottle a year if you can resist, right? Yeah. Um, but or even two bottles. I mean, over a six year span. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, one last thing I want to bring up before we wrap up, mm-hmm. you will see this grape around every once in a while outside of the Loire, mm-hmm. specifically in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Yeah. Uh, you will see it like um, Washington, like Puget Sound, typically area, or Dude, the Willamette, bow and arrow. Bow and Arrow. Bow and Arrow, small winery in Oregon. They do a melon. Right. They're going to label it as melon. Yep. Right. Yep. And man, if you are blind tasted on that and you call Muscadet, that's all good. Yeah. That's all good if you think that's French because they do an awesome interpretation. Right. And they are a like Loire. Um, how do I say this? You know, they're, they're highly influenced by the wines of the Loire and they want to do that style in Oregon. So like Pinot Noir is a Loire Valley grape. Um, Cabernet Franc is a Loire, um, Malbec or, or Co Cot is a Loire Valley grape and Bow and Arrow does a lot of those. Right. But yeah, that's a great point. I didn't, um, I didn't think about outside of this little small region of Nantes. Yeah. Uh, where the Loire, empties out yeah, sorry, into I, the I, Atlantic. That I mispronounced that earlier. You, you can, okay. yeah, it's all right. Maybe it's Nantes. I, Nantes. No I think idea. it's Nantes. I have no idea. I did take French in high school. I know. And I didn't. Little pronunciations. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, and I wanted Pacific to bring that Northwest, up. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to bring that up because the reason that it works up there is because you get these cool sea breezes, mm-hmm. right? So, you're getting, in, in those areas, you're getting these cool breezes that are salty, and that grape almost needs it to, mm-hmm. to kind of finish its it's life off to to give you everything it's got right um i remember having one from van duzer years ago right on cool. um and and again they are making loire at van duzer they're making very loire and burgundian type uh, uh wines yeah in in general right much lighter and and uh not as extracted and so this is named after the Van Duzer Corridor, which I believe has its own AVA now. It does, yeah. Based on this really cool climate that it has. So that's interesting. I didn't even know that that they were doing one. Um, doing the do's, baby. You know, Oregon is becoming, or already has become, like the next, like there's Piedmont, Loire, and Oregon. Yeah. Like, you know, like everything under the sun, tremendous value, and um, delicious wines, uh, and... You know, you you won't get bored from from staying drinking in that that region, right? Cool, man. This was a fun episode for sure. I appreciate it. A lot of fun. Cheers. All right, let's wrap it up. Everybody, remember, life is short. Drink what you like tonight. Thank you for listening to That Wine Pod. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at at That Wine Pod, and we are That Wine Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out Mike on Instagram at Vino Mike. And Pete is at Fat Man Stories. Please subscribe to That Wine Pod on your favorite podcast app and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. The music is Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. That Wine Pod is a production of Paragon Media. Wine.